0: What's going on, Renaissance? My name is Jordan Rice. I'm very glad to be here. Sheila's really happy that I'm here. Nobody else is. (laughs) I'm here with my boss, uh, uh, (laughs) my wife, Jessica. Yes, very glad to be on the stage with you guys.
1: Hi, everybody. Hi. Hi.
0: Hey, so we're really glad to be with you guys today, uh, especially on Church and Chill Sunday. I hope you guys... Uh, spend some time with us after and head with us down toward Morningside Park. It's going to be a a good time. One of the things that I think I love the most about Renaissance is the diversity. Uh, I love to look out in the room and just see all of the different faces from literally every ethnicity, uh, different age groups. It's one of the most beautiful things about what God has done with Renaissance, and I, I don't know that I celebrate it enough. But by far, the most diverse place I've ever been wasn't renaissance, it wasn't a church, it was uh, the cardiothoracic ICU at Columbia Presbyterian Hospital, about 50 blocks north of here. Uh, There were Muslims and Jewish people and Christians and white people, black people, Asians, Latinos. Uh, There were people from everywhere, even the faraway land of Staten Island. They were also, they found their way to Columbia. Uh, But they weren't there for anything good. Uh, They were there because one of their loved ones had just had a major heart surgery, and families would be huddled together, crying and praying and pacing up and down the hallway, hoping for some good news. Every now and then, the nurse would come out, and she would escort a family into this private family room, and after having been there for a couple of days, I realized that when a nurse comes out, uh, she's not coming to tell you anything good. Now I was there because I was with my my first wife, Danielle. Uh, She had just had uh, a major heart surgery, an open heart surgery. Uh, A few weeks before that, actually, she just wasn't feeling well. We thought it was something small, like a little chest virus. Uh, That's what the doctor told us at first. Uh, But after a couple of weeks of not being able to shake it, we decided to go to the ER. Uh, So we get to the hospital. And when we got there, they said, hey, instead of just sending her home, we're going to actually have to admit her and keep her overnight. Day after day, uh, I watched as her condition got worse and worse. And about five days after she had been hospitalized, uh, she got rushed by ambulance to Columbia for a heart surgery. They were calling it a procedure at first, uh, saying, hey, 45 minutes, she'll be in and out. She'll be feeling great in no time. About three and a half hours later, the surgeon came out with a pretty crazy expression on his face, uh, letting us know that she had actually almost died on the operating table, and we had no idea still what was causing everything that was going on. So there I was in the mix of the rest of the families there at Columbia, alongside my family, praying and crying and pacing the hallways, just hoping for some good news. One morning, about five days after she had gotten sick, and about five days after the surgery, I was sleeping on a recliner at the hospital, and the cardiologist came up to me uh, at about six in the morning and woke me up, and I knew that either he has some amazing news or he has some terrible news, but certainly there's no reason you come at six in the morning uh, just to tell someone uh, about something benign. And he shot straight, and he said, actually, this is the worst-case scenario, Uh, Danielle has primary cardiac angiosarcoma. It's an extremely rare and it's an extremely aggressive form of cancer and the tumor starts on your heart. It actually starts in the worst place imaginable. And at this point, he was saying medically, we're looking at a few weeks, uh, maybe a few months uh, tops. And there we were crying and praying and hoping alongside of everyone else that somehow this news that we knew was gonna be terrible wouldn't end up turning out to be that bad. Danielle and I are Christians, we love God. This story can't end this way. But about 10 months later, uh, after that day, uh, we found ourselves back in the hospital. Uh, This time I was watching her take her last breaths. And as I sat there in the hospital watching her take her last breaths, uh, the, the nurse came up to us and offered us the family room and telling us, hey, you can take as much time as you want. But what can time do for you once life has given you a brand new reality and that the only thing you want to do is go backwards, not forward? We were left wondering, what now?
1: And I also am familiar with those family rooms that Jordan just described. I found myself sitting in one nearly eight years ago on a random Thursday night in July Um, in a hospital that was just outside of Washington, D.C., where I lived with my first husband, Jerron. And earlier that day, I'd been at home, relaxing after a day of work, sitting on the couch when um, Jerron and his friends had gone out riding on their motorcycles. And a little after 9 p.m., there was a knock on the door, and I jumped up to answer it. And Standing there was the girlfriend of one of the friends who'd been out riding with Jerron that night, and she told me that he'd been in an accident, and as panic just coursed through my body, you know, that feeling you get where you feel like the heat coming from the tip of your scalp down to your feet, she quickly reassured me that he was all right that uh, he'd been rushed to a hospital in an ambulance and that she would give me a ride there. So we hopped in her car, we got to the hospital. When I saw Jerron's friends, they told me what was going on. They said he was in bad shape, that he had a broken foot, and that he had been complaining of some discomfort in his chest, but that he was all right. Um, So I felt at ease, but within a matter of just a few short minutes, the assurances that I'd been getting from friends that he was going to be all right quickly changed to the emergency nurses telling me that the doctors were doing everything they could to keep him alive. And so I am sitting in this family room, and the best thing that I know to do is to pray. And we all start praying, me and his friends. And when I finish praying, I turn to everyone in the room and I say, you know what, Jerron is going to be okay. And I really believe that because I'm thinking to myself, God, man, you know and I know how special he is, and this absolutely can't be the end for him. So we sit in silence after praying, and the nurse returns, this time with a doctor who is looking for me in the room. I raise my hand to let him know where I am, and he tells me that Jaron had a lot of injuries, that he had a lot of internal bleeding, and that they had tried to drain the blood out of his body and give it back to him, but it was just too much of a strain on his heart, and he was sorry. And I immediately shot out of my chair, and I started shouting, no. Actually, I wasn't even shouting. I was very calmly saying no. Over and over again, though, because I believed that if I said it enough times, I could make the news untrue. And I even pleaded with him to go back and try again, as if there was some way that he could go back there and bring him back to life. And the truth was, there was no way. The truth was, I had gone from sitting on my couch with plans of having cheesecake for dessert when Jerron got home to this, in this family room, in this hospital, with Jerron's friends, men who are covering their faces as they cry. I had to call Jerron's parents and give them the news, and my heart broke two more times. People started showing up at the hospital, and a lot of things became blurry. And eventually that night, I had to go home. I had to leave Duran there. I had to leave the hospital, and I was left to grapple with this new reality that, after being married for just two and a half months, I was a 26-year-old widow. Now. I'm left there in this moment thinking, now what? Similar to what Jordan was feeling after Danielle died. And whether we look at the death of a spouse or a loved one or horrendous terror attacks happening around our world or cancer or miscarriage or persecution, suffering, the reality is that suffering is all around us. And there are many times where life hands us things that hurt so bad, and we are left saying, now what? When you think about it, there's really probably just three kinds of people in this world we live in. There's people who have suffered, there's people who are currently suffering, and there are people who will suffer. And for the past few weeks here at Renaissance, we 've been walking through paul 's letter to the Philippians, and we've been talking about joy, which we've defined as a settled state of confidence and hope in joy in excuse me in god and this morning we've shared our stories of suffering not to depress you, um, but really because we understand firsthand that Suffering can be a very real obstacle to this thing that we've been talking about, joy. So we think it's worth asking the question, how can we have this settled confidence and hope in God when life hands us really difficult situations? Surely, you and I need a hope that suffering and pain can't destroy. And the reason we've chosen to walk through the book of Philippians for this series about pathways to joy and developing a theology of joy is because Paul, the author, repeatedly talks about joy throughout this letter that he's written. But here's the kicker. He's writing this letter as he's going through an immense amount of suffering. Paul is writing this letter as he's locked in a dungeon, with no light and no food, far from the people he loves, heavy chains around his neck and feet at all times of day, and yet he's still talking about joy. In fact, throughout this book, which is only four short chapters, Paul uses the word joy or rejoice at least 16 times. And when we imagine the things that he's going through, which, quite honestly, for most of this room, we can't even begin to fathom the things he was going through, to know that he continued to talk about joy over and over, we think he's really a great source and worth listening to. So, before we dive into all the things that suffering... Produces in us, I think it's important for us to tackle two common misconceptions that we often have when it comes to thinking about pain and distress in our lives. The first one is the misconception that joy is the absence of sadness, that joy is the absence of sadness. And if we look in chapter 2 of Philippians, verses 25 to 27, We see Paul talking to the Philippians about his friend Epaphroditus. And yes, Epaphroditus, for all of you expecting parents, you're welcome. That can be an excellent name for 2017. Okay. So let's start with verse 25 here. Paul talking to the Philippians. He says, but I think it is necessary to send back to you Epaphroditus my brother, co-worker, and fellow soldier, who's also your messenger, whom you sent to take care of my needs. For he longs for all of you and is distressed because you heard he was ill. And indeed, he was ill and almost died. But God had mercy on him, not only on him, but also on me to spare me sorrow upon sorrow." did we catch this renaissance? Epaphroditus was Paul's really good friend, and he had been very, very sick, almost to the point of death. And this is how Paul talks about the thought of his friend dying. He calls it sorrow upon sorrow. Some of us are prone to have this misconception that when we talk about joy, it's all about the absence of pain and sadness and grief um, that it's all about feeling good and happy and like everything is sunshine and roses. But we see here in Philippians that Paul, the man who is writing over and over about joy, was very much in touch with the concepts and feelings of sorrow and sadness. He wasn't asking for sorrow, he certainly wanted to avoid sorrow. But we also see he had a very real good hold of what it means to feel sadness and, at the same time, have joy. And and why is that? Why was Paul able to feel sadness and also feel joy? Well, I think it's because the opposite of joy is not sadness, though we're often prone to think that it is. The opposite of joy is not sadness. In fact, the opposite of joy is hopelessness. When Paul and other scripture writers... Speak to us about having a settled state of confidence and hope in God, they aren't talking about us pretending that bad things aren't going on in our lives, that things don't hurt, that we're not sad, but rather in the midst of adversity they would want us to have an anchor for our souls. Now the second misconception that I also think Philippians addresses is that when it comes to pain and suffering, Many of us think that pain, suffering shouldn't happen to good people and to those whom God loves. And Jordan and I certainly know how that feels. We've been there. We've had the questions about why God would Danielle and Jerron have to die. Two God-fearing, God-loving people, why would they have to die what seemed like such untimely deaths? And some of you might be here in the audience today asking questions to God, like, God, why would you allow me to be sexually assaulted? Why would you allow my marriage to fail? God, why would you not give me the children that I long to love? God, why, for all of my trying, can't you just help me get a little bit ahead financially? If we sat and we made a list of all the things, the terrible things that we see, the painful things that we see happening, we'd have a very long list of whys. And honestly, there are books and books written about pain and suffering, and I'm not sure that any of them really has the power to take away the sting, how much it hurts. What I think we often do, though, is associate God's love for us with our circumstances. Sometimes we do that even subconsciously. And we think that if God loves us, like really loves us, then surely we wouldn't have to suffer. And I think that if we take a hard look at scripture, and we take a hard look at the people who God loved, we see quite a different story. There's something really significant in Philippians, this time in the first chapter, verses 29 to 30, And Paul says this, he says, For it has been granted to you, on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him, since you are going through the same struggle you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. Let's go back to 29 for a second. It has been granted to you. That's heavy. That's heavy. It has been granted to you. Here Paul is saying that the same God who gives us faith also allows us to suffer. And while it hurts and it may not feel purposeful, it's absolutely not accidental. Am I saying that God wanted Jeron and Danielle to die? That he wanted all the horrible things that maybe you've experienced in your life to happen? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. The truth is we live in a broken world that God has promised to one day redeem. But until then, until that time of redemption, we get a glimpse here in Philippians that all the brokenness is not meaningless. It's not meaningless. That our suffering, in fact, does not need to be wasted.
0: Now we know that today uh, we have in some ways, an unenviable task of telling people, some of you who might be going through some difficult situations, uh, experiencing some painful places in life, that everything that is coming your way is neither accidental nor meaningless. Now, the only reason we told our stories up front is not to depress you or to have a contest of whose life is what was worse, Uh, but simply to hopefully legitimize what we're saying as not insensitive, uh, that we know the reality of a a really, really bad day or a bad year, um, and what we're not trying to do is flippantly skip over this as if everything is all good. That being said, Paul's argument here to this Philippian church is this. Everything that has come your way is neither accidental nor meaningless. And as ridiculously painful as some of those things are, none of it is wasted. Now, in life, uh, you and I would have so many things that we wouldn't have anything to, we would have no way of using all of these things together. But in Scripture, what Paul is getting at is that nothing in our life is, is either accidental or meaningless. Now, that being said, we certainly don't have the answer on why does suffering and evil exist in this world. Uh, nobody Uh, has a great philosophical answer for that. Uh, I've read books and books on why does suffering exist, and to be quite honest, none of those answers have ever satisfied me intellectually. I've never gotten up from reading that and said, oh, I feel better now. That's great. Um, We've gotten some pretty terrible news in our family recently. Uh, One of my niece's best friends was murdered by her own father. Uh, And there is no answer that you can just say, hey, this is why that happened. Here you go. Deal with that. What do you say to somebody whose loved one just committed suicide? Do you give him an answer? There is no philosophical answer that can address that uh, in a way that would emotionally satisfy you. And I don't think that what Paul is trying to do here is say, here, here's an answer for you just to take and to accept. I think what Paul is getting at is that what's going on in your life, the things that God allows are neither accidental nor meaningless, and that God is doing something with that suffering. And as impossible as it is to believe, this heinous thing that we all hate, Suffering is a tool that God uses to produce things inside of us that will ultimately lead as a pathway to joy. Now, we've been talking about how do we establish and have real biblical solid confidence, a settledness in our heart that is an internal paradigm that is shaping the way we experience the world externally. That no matter what comes your way, that there is something inside of you internally that is settled there's a confidence in you that is settled. It is dug deep in the ground. And no matter what comes your way, that is what joy is. And Paul is arguing that one of the ways that God actually accomplishes this in your life is not just through a Bible study. It's not just through a sermon, but it's actually through suffering. Now, how could that be? I think one of the first ways that I see this truth, certainly in my own life, is suffering In suffering, we develop a reliance on God. Now, in suffering, much more than the best days of your life, you will develop a reliance on God. And certainly, being a caretaker uh, for a woman who was dealing with a terminal cancer forced me, it threw me away from self-reliance into relying on God in an instant. And day after day, I came to the end of myself, and I knew that there is no way in this world that Jordan can navigate it. Now, sometimes in life, there are situations that your education, your connections, all of your well-intentions, all of your hard work cannot dig you out of. And in those moments, we turn to God. This is why scriptures like Psalm 18 and 6 are so real. David, when he's writing this, he says, In my distress, I called to the Lord. I cried to my God for help. Now, isn't this true for a lot of you guys that regardless of your theology, regardless of what you said you believed about God, regardless of how churchy you are or churchy you weren't, when life hits you below the belt, you turn to God. And it wasn't in your success. It wasn't in your affluence. It wasn't when the bank account was flowing. It wasn't when the relationship status was amazing. It was in your distress that you turned to God. It was when you found out that the company was downsizing, and you weren't going to have enough money to pay bills, and you might not even be able to stay in your apartment anymore. It's then when we turn to God. It's when you got the phone call that you never expected and never wanted, in that moment when you knew a loved one was in a terrible situation, or where you knew a loved one was in a hospital, and it was beyond your control to do anything, in your distress, you cried out to God. Now, one of the ways that this is a pathway to joy is that the quickest way to being unsettled in your life is to rely on yourself. We don't have the answers. We don't know anything. We, we can barely uh, exist from moment to moment on ourselves. And suffering removes the illusion that you and I are in control of our own lives. When life hands you something that is beyond your ability to navigate, the illusion that you can control life, the illusion that you should rely on yourself, all disappears And it's in these moments that you and I turn to God. And here's what I think Paul is getting at. That as a pathway to joy, that as he's writing to this Philippian church, he's saying, listen, the things that God has allowed in your life, these are in part to dislodge your reliance on yourself. And that in and of itself is a pathway to you finding joy, to take your functional dependence from yourself to God. And it's in our distress that we learn how to pray. Now, nobody ever needed to tell me, Jordan, you should pray a couple times a day when I was taking care of my late wife. It was something that every fiber in my body knew that I could not do anything about it, so I had to turn to God. And in these moments when God allows certain things to happen in our life, part of it, as painful as it is, is to dislodge our functional dependence on ourselves, and it removes that illusion And it really does cause us to depend on God. And the result of that is a more settled state of confidence because God is the only thing that is immovable. God is the only one that will not change from season to season, generation to generation. God is everlasting and we are not. And in suffering, we learn to lean and depend on God.
1: Amen. Um, The second thing that I think from our own life experience that we've learned is that Suffering really helps us to set our sights on eternity, and this one is honestly a little hard to swallow because, after all, we tend to be people who live for the here and the now, and certainly after uh, my first husband died, I was left wondering, you know, what is my present or my future? It all felt shattered, and it was hard to even look beyond the very next five minutes, let alone setting my sights on eternity. But in the weeks and the months after Jerron passed away, I slowly started to realize how I had developed before he passed a very faulty understanding of who God was and also a very faulty understanding of where I should place my hope. Before Jerron died, I would say that I had kind of your run-of-the-mill fears and anxiety about, you know, the, the safety of my family or what the future might hold. And my method for trying to calm my fears was often to pray to God and to say, God, I know that you love me and I know that you are going to do all of these things that I can see are very good, that you'll do all of these things for me. And that was a great line of thinking. It was all good until it wasn't, until I didn't get the thing that I wanted. The thing that what I would consider is absolutely a good thing for my husband to stay alive. When I didn't get that thing, it called into question all kinds of different things for me. I learned that I really, as opposed to fixing my eyes on the circumstances of my day-to-day, had to fix my eyes on something more permanent. I had to fix my eyes on something that never changes. And you know the one thing that never changes? God. Instead of saying, God, you won't let this thing happen because you're good. And I think a lot of us use that line of reasoning I learned to say, God, whatever happens, I know you're working all things together for my good. And that was a huge shift. That's a huge shift that was only made possible because of the suffering that I encountered. There is a passage of scripture in the book of Matthew, the seventh chapter, where Jesus is sharing the parable about a house built on different foundations. And in the parable, he says this, starting um, chapter 7, verse 24. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall, because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. This is huge. For me, I can honestly say that I'd been building my faith on a beach, on what I could see in the here and now. And when the wave of suffering came crashing in, well, the sand beneath my house started to erode, and all kinds of things were called into question about, is God there? Is God real? Does God love me? Is he worthy of my trust? All because my eyes were fixed on my circumstances and not on him and eternity. Our suffering is used by God to prevent us from seeing our present reality as ultimate, which we're often so prone to do. When everything around you is falling down, when your everything dies of cancer, when your everything is lost due to downsizing at your company, when your everything is lost because of a bad investment, there's nowhere else to go. But suffering forces us to look toward eternity. And that's actually the only thing that can sustain the weight of our hope. Focusing on eternity is the pathway to really having a settled state of confidence and hope, joy. And honestly, as long as our only focus is on the here and now, our faith will always remain vulnerable. It will always be a faith built on that sand that can wash away. Paul puts it this way in 2 Corinthians 4, verses 16 to 18. He says, therefore, we do not lose heart, though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day, for our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen, since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen Is eternal.
0: Yes, give it up for that. So suffering does a couple of things in our life. The first, it does cause us uh, to leave our reliance on ourselves and to focus our reliance on God and depend on God. And secondly, certainly uh, suffering um, causes us to set our sights on eternity. And the third thing Uh, that we want to talk about that suffering does for us, uh, the pathway that suffering takes us on that leads us towards joy is that it refines the goal of your faith. Suffering refines your motivations. Now, what you do is very important, but why you do it is even more important. And the third thing we're talking about today is that suffering actually refines the goal of our faith. And the goal, what you want to get out of your relationship with God, uh, becomes refined, and your motivations get changed as a, a result of that. Uh, there's a scripture in First Peter that probably says it best, and uh, I'm just going to read First Peter. It says it like this, in this you greatly rejoice. Here's that word again, joy. Though now for a while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials, Think about the things going on in your life. This is what scripture is saying in all kinds of trials. And here's what Peter says. These have come so that your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine and may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Now, I want to be really gentle here um, because this is something that I struggled with and I still struggle with, to be quite honest. But if you were to really take a hard look at what is the goal of your faith, like what do you really hope to get out of it, Um, I think that for a lot of us, if we were to really take a hard look at what do we really want to get out of life, what do we want to get out of our relationship with God, uh, I think the answer would be a good life. I think that for a lot of us, when you would say the goal of your faith, we would include there a good life. Now, this looks differently for everybody. For me, it looks like the Knicks getting rid of Phil Jackson and getting rid of James Dolan, getting new ownership and starting this thing from scratch. Uh, It looks like uh, an apartment uh, that I don't have to worry about the doorman falling asleep at 2 o'clock p.m. Like, why are we paying this guy? Um, It looks like a better version of Jordan's life. But when suffering hits, when your relationship with your closest family crumbles down, when... Uh, your job situation becomes something that you know is just not getting any better. When you realize that you're past the point of in life that you can actually have kids and it's a tremendous pain that you're dealing with. When life hands us suffering in all kinds of trials, what happens is it calls into question what we were hoping to get out of this in the first place. It refines our motivations and it, for the first time probably ever, it makes us look in the mirror and ask, answer the question, What are we hoping to get out of this whole thing with God? If God doesn't give me the thing that I've asked for, then what? I've mentioned this before, but certainly after Danielle died, uh, after a couple of months, even though on the outside I looked like I was a good Christian, I had been ordained as a minister, I was teaching Bible studies, I really never prayed for like six months. Like never. Uh, I might say grace just, you know, at the dinner table to be polite, uh, when I was with some people, but I had zero motivation to pray. And one day, it hit me like a ton of bricks. The goal of my faith had been to get a better life. It had been for a really good thing, it, something that was good uh, that I was praying for, which was my wife being healed. But when I did not get the good life as I described it, the goal of my faith become became crystal clear, that I realized that all along, I was kind of using God to get what I wanted to get out of life. And once God didn't do that for me, he was useless. Why pray? Why go to church? Why give money? Why sing songs? Why do any of these things? Because God is not doing what I'm wanting. And here's what, man, I I just want to say to you guys that I know to be true for myself. The most painful thing that we'll encounter is when God is burning off the impurities of our faith. But many of those things are only burnt off in the furnace of suffering. And that even when that's going on, as painful as it is, it is neither accidental nor is it meaningless. Now, I've been thinking for a couple of days about this. Um, Why wouldn't God just let you be happy? Like, why wouldn't God just let you rock out? If you're happy with, uh, if you're happy eating Applebee's steaks, then go for it. Like, you know, God, God shouldn't force you to eat Peter Luger's. God shouldn't force these things on you. Like, why would God be so insistent? Why would God allow this in your life when this is not what you want? Now, I think the answer to that is this that real love, real love always wants you to have the very best. Real love always wants you to have the absolute best. And in, in a lot of ways, it will stop at nothing for you to have that. I think back to the time when I was saving up money for an engagement ring. Uh, For my late wife, Danielle, and I ended up even taking out some student loans because, you know, my pockets were a little short. Um, took out a, a little student loan. I was still in seminary to just kind of help me get uh, over the hump. Uh, and deep down inside, I was willing to go into debt personally because I wanted her to have something that was beautiful and precious. I loved her and I wanted her to have the absolute very best. Now, if God does love you, then that means that real love that God has for you means that God wants you to have the absolute very best, and he doesn't want you to have a counterfeit. C.S. Lewis says it like this. Um, It's a great quote. He says, um, God cannot give us a happiness and peace apart from himself because it is not there. There is no such thing. God cannot give you happiness. God cannot give you peace apart from himself. There is no such thing. It does not exist. And sometimes in God allowing suffering to take place, it's because this is the way that you and I will truly be able to find him. It's funny. I was talking to somebody after the first service and they were like, yo, I I can learn the lesson another way. God, like give me a book. I promise you I'll read that joint. (laughs) Like what book is it? I'll read it. You don't need to burn my house down. You don't need to kill somebody for me to get this lesson Uh, And I think that's us also misunderstanding God's intentions, that God is not uh, a bully that's holding us down in the sand to to make us learn a lesson. That is not what God is doing in, in, in allowing suffering. But it is that God, in some ways, is burning off the impurities of our faith because he knows what would truly make us happy and peaceful and to truly find this settled state of confidence and joy. And sometimes God accomplishes that in the furnace of suffering. Now, as I look at my own life, and I look at certainly scripture, um, we see that suffering refines the faith of those who place their faith in Jesus, and it's not wasted, and it makes us more settled on the other side. Now, do I think I could have learned a whole lot of lessons about God, um, and a whole lot about Jesus, and a whole lot about how to be a good pastor, and all this other stuff without my wife dying? Absolutely. I don't think that God wanted this to happen, or that uh, that God um, somehow thought this was the only way this could exist in my life but i will say this having been on the other side of this now for a number of years nothing in my life has formed my faith nothing has burned off the impurities nothing has shaped my motivations and faith quite like suffering did and if you are right now in the furnace i would just tell you to wait a little bit wait a little bit before you give a premature a premature uh, assessment of what this is going to do in your life, uh, what your job situation is leading to, what your marriage failing is leading to, what uh, whatever situation is that's leading to, wait a couple of years and see later if you could come back and be like what David said, it is good for me that I had been afflicted, that I might learn the statutes of the Lord. On the other side, we have the benefits of seeing what we could have never seen, certainly in that moment. And if you are right now in that furnace, Hold on. And one day, as you see the Lord working in your life, it's my prayer, and I, and I fully believe this to be true, that you, you would be able to see that suffering was not something that you would have ever wanted, ever asked for, ever want to go through again, but it was something that you can see the hand of God in your life using it as a tool. Painful, yes, but also not meaningless and not accidental. Hey, I think Paul got to this place in Philippians, as he lets us know, Philippians 3, 7 through 9, he says, But whatever were gains to me, uh, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Now, I can't fully understand everything Paul is saying here, to be perfectly honest, but I do think this is where, uh, where Paul is going. That there's a connection between the losses that we feel and our ability to appreciate the surpassing worth of Christ Jesus. That there's a a, a direct connection between what God has allowed in our lives and our ability to appreciate God in our lives once everything else has been removed. Now, Paul didn't arrive at this conclusion easily, and you certainly won't. I know I certainly did not. Uh, and I'm still in the process of trying to figure out all this for my life personally. Every time something bad happens, I feel like I'm continually relearning these lessons. Uh, there is no PhD. There is no finished course in the School of Suffering. Uh, it's something that over time we learn over and over and over again what it looks like to follow and to simply trust Jesus. But one of the interesting things that we see uh, even when you look at Jesus on the cross is that Jesus' own disciples, the, the, the men who, and women who followed Jesus the most closely for years still had no idea what the purpose of Jesus was in their life. Even they thought that Jesus' purpose in their life was to give him a good life. They wanted Israel to retake uh, over the kingdom uh, and they wanted them to they wanted Jesus to be an earthly leader, to overthrow Rome, and they were arguing who's going to be sitting at the left and to the right when Jesus comes into power. And they had absolutely no intention of Jesus being hung, hung naked on the cross, embarrassed for the world to see. They had no inclination that Jesus would, would be uh, laid bare and that his story would involve a spear being rubbed and thrust into his side. They had no idea that God could have ever allowed or wanted or purposed such a thing. But while Jesus was on that cross, while they were so disillusioned, Jesus was accomplishing the most profound thing in human history. He was connecting a broken humanity and divinity together. 2 Corinthians 5 and 19 says it like this, that God, while Jesus was on the cross, God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And God has committed to us the message of reconciliation. When Jesus' disciples' world was crumbling around them, Jesus was accomplishing, literally, the salvation of our souls. Jesus was accomplishing the very mission of God. And that lets us know that in God's plans for humanity, that God is willing to disappoint us at times, sometimes, profoundly, but it doesn't mean it doesn't mean that it is meaningless or that God is somehow wasting that experience. Now, we're going to enter into a time here at Renaissance uh, called communion. And communion is a meal that Jesus served uh, to his closest friends. And he took some bread and he broke it. And he says, this is my body, which is broken for you. And then he took some wine and he poured it. He says, this is my blood, which is poured out for you in the remission of sins. Now, today, if you have placed your faith in Christ, this is what I want you to do. I want you to carry with you whatever it is in your mind that you're thinking, God, this can't make any sense. And as you receive the elements of what was by no stretch of the imagination a brutal, heinous thing that God turned out to be, the salvation of the world, uh, that you can simultaneously carry whatever weight, whatever burden you have to this table of communion, and you can say, Jesus, I may not understand it all, but I do know that you have a great track record of turning things out that were heinous and horrible to be for our good. And even if I don't understand it, even if I don't agree with it, even if I don't think it's ever going to end, Jesus, I'm just going to trust you for one more day. I'm going to trust you another day, trusting that everything that you're allowing in my life is neither meaningless and it's not accidental. Let me pray for us. Father, uh, so many times as we think about the challenges that we face in life or the challenges that others have faced around the world or the heinous things that are happening. God, it causes us to, to question so much. Question your love, question your goodness. Uh, and Jesus, in those moments, help us to take our eyes off of the sandy beach that we've been building and to put it on you, our solid rock. Jesus, would you carry us in this season? Would you carry us and lead us would you turn our weakness into strength? In Jesus name we pray. Amen and amen.